Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe today is the first official day of March Madness, although the past two nights we've had um, round-robin games, but today is the real um, start to March Madness. Not that the round-robin games don't count for those schools that uh, participated, but uh, today uh, has been an interesting day uh, for all of you, like me, who follow March Madness you never know um, who prevails when it comes to picking a, um, what do you call it, bracket of um, whom you hope will survive and advance past the first round and make that ultimate uh, journey into the uh, prized, um, what do you call it, prized uh, ticket slot of the final four. I know ticket slot may not sound, um, the uh, what do you, how would I say it, it probably doesn't sound like the fanciest of wording, but the Final Four itself is the ultimate dream. Of course, winning the national title is the granddaddy of them all, but making it to the Final Four is really the, um, what do you call it? I mean, as they call it, the road to the Final Four. So uh, I do know that my bracket has seen a couple of um, defeats today, but, you know, that's to be expected. Um, hopefully uh, things will uh, continue to improve. <laughs> well, you know... Um, I think the more uh, relevant thing uh, that should be a focus is what we've been discussing um, since uh, this past Saturday, and that is um, Judy Bloodgood Banders, Jack Jewett, revolutionary rider, the ride to save Virginia and the American Revolution. Well, when I was on the air last, uh, we learned how... Um, we learned how uh, the General Assembly uh, passed legislation in May of 1779, um, basically uh, transferring the seat of government from uh, Williamsburg to Richmond. And we also learned that um, Richmond was first settled in 1737 and became a town in 1742 and was uh, founded by Mr. William Byrd uh, II, who was a member of the Virginia Governor's Council, for pretty much 35 years, from 1709 up until his passing in 1744. So, what we're going to be talking about in this uh, podcast segment is uh, the lead-up to um, the beginning of January 1781, which will be discussed, but we do have to get through some other stuff first that is a prelude to 1781, or I should say the prelude to the start of 1781. So, our first uh, lead-off question for this uh, podcast segment is going to be the following. Besides the battle at Great Bridge, which is located just outside of Chesapeake, uh, that occurred um, at the end of uh, 1775, being in uh, December of that year, uh, and for those of you who uh, remembered uh, previously, Great Bridge was uh, the battle. It was a small uh, battle, but it was the first battle that took place in Virginia. Uh, Patriot forces defeated uh, Lord Dunmore's uh, Ethiopian regiment. He had basically um, told those who uh, took up arms with the crown, that is, they, uh, that is those slaves, that if they uh, left their uh, master's uh, plantations, that if they were to be on the side of the crown, that, if, that they would be given their freedom. And basically the incentive was to take up arms against... Um, against those whom had um, basically enslaved, had enslaved them for quite some time. So anyways, 
Besides the battle at Great Bridge from December of 1775, and remember, folks, we're in the year uh, 1779 now, just so that you all have an idea, did uh, Virginia's uh, governor, Patrick Henry, face a crisis involving British forces invading the Chesapeake Bay? Uh, and that answer is yes. Patrick Henry, believe it or not, as governor, did face a uh, crisis. Was it a grand crisis or was it a mid-level crisis? If you ask me, it would be a mid-level mid crisis, but it was a crisis that um, was alarming to him um, to basically to where he had to go as high up as um, asking assistance from Congress. Okay, so when does uh, an actual... Um, when does an actual crisis take place involving British forces? It takes place on May 8th of 1779, but um, prior to the um, invasion happening, Governor Henry uh, went before Congress asking for uh, urgent assistance to have better uh, naval defense um, protective measures in and around the Chesapeake Bay. Think about it, folks. Ships coming in and out of the Chesapeake Bay for general commerce purposes is one thing, but when you have an enemy making its way up and down the waters, not just the Atlantic Ocean, but various uh, tributaries of, that uh, flow into the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, after all, the bay itself is one of the largest watersheds uh, on the east coast of the United States. And for those of you who are curious to know what Chesapeake itself means, well, it was uh, uh, it's uh, referred to as abundance of shellfish. The Indians um, in Virginia, most notably along the uh, uh, coastal plain tidewater region, or basically the Powhatan Confederacy, referred to uh, the Chesapeake uh, Bay region, basically meaning abundance of shellfish. So Patrick Henry did go before Congress urgently asking for more naval defense measures to protect uh, Virginia, most notably um, given that it was vulnerable to an attack from the Chesapeake Bay, from the Chesapeake Bay waters. But the requests never came through. Doesn't that sound like uh, how Congress can function even in today's time when someone asks for more um, money for regardless of whether it's uh, funding for um, military uh, defense systems or or even, you know, for education, um, transportation. Sometimes um, you might get some money if you're lucky, but in other instances you might not get anything. So Patrick Henry did not get any kind of funding for, um, for uh, what do you call it, better uh, naval defense uh, measures. So, come May 8th of 1779, British ships under Sir George Collier arrived into the bay where troops came inland into uh, the towns of Portsmouth and Suffolk, which are located not far from uh, Virginia Beach and Norfolk and uh, Hampton Roads. And British uh, forces coming inland went at full force. Not only did they... Um, destroy uh, Portsmouth and Suffolk, but they also uh, destroyed essential provisions. Well, when I think of essential provisions, wouldn't it be fair to say that uh, provisions like, say, gunpowder, 
foundries that would have other um, essential armaments like, you know, cannons uh, or, you know, parts of cannon, uh, parts of uh, equipment that would go uh, to a cannon. Uh, basically anything that would be used um, for um, better military uh, protective um, purposes. So you would think that, okay, by May 8th of 1779 or into early May of 1779 that the British are intent on wanting to um, stay in Virginia. I would have thought the same thing too. But it turns out that uh, British forces under Sir George Collier's command stayed in Virginia's coastal plain or tidewater region for just around two weeks. Uh, they stayed until May 24th. And shortly after the British invasion, Governor Patrick Henry leaves office. Does he leave office because of what happened back on May 8th? No. He leaves office due to Virginia's state constitution's limitations on consecutive terms. The Constitution of Virginia at this time, folks, basically states that a governor can serve up can, that a governor's term is of 1 year, but the governor himself can serve no more than a maximum of 3 consecutive 1-year terms. Now, uh, Virginia in today's time is the only state in the United States where a governor um, where a governor serves just one four-year term. Now, that governor can choose to run again at a later time, but he or she cannot um, serve two consecutive terms. So, in other words, after the four-year term expires, they have to sit out for four years and then make a decision as to whether they want to um, uh, run again for uh, public office in the Commonwealth. That's only happened one time in Virginia's history. As a matter of fact, it was um, Mills Godwin. And there, um, Mills Godwin was governor of Virginia his first stint from 1966 to 1970. He was a Democrat, but in 1973 he uh, ran again for governor and switched parties. And he um, won... Uh, election in 73 as a Republican, and to this day, Mills Godwin is the only um, governor of Virginia who won two uh, consecutive, who won two non-consecutive terms from uh, from different parties. And uh, Godwin's second stint as uh, governor was from 1974 to 1978. So for Patrick Henry, you know, he served three one-year terms, and it's fair to say that his governorship was a successful one. But at the same time, I'm, I'm sure that he would have given anything in the world to have done more. But I think it's fair to say he has done everything in his power. The problem is that Congress didn't do more. Had Congress done a little bit more, the uh, British, um, the British, who knows, maybe the British might not have successfully invaded Portsmouth and Suffolk. Could it, is it fair to say that although the British didn't stay long-term in Virginia, is it fair to say, though, that the, uh, that, the, that the invasion of Suffolk and Portsmouth, along with the destruction of essential provisions, is a warning of what could lie ahead down the road, given that the, um, that the mission now for, um, for the king and basically for England is to focus on the south? considering that that mission began a year earlier in 1778? Absolutely. 
of course, there is fighting in the South. It's down in the Carolinas, and we're going to get to that here soon. But Virginia is not out of the woods. It's fair to say that what just happened in May of 1779 is just the beginning of what could be in store uh, down the road in the future that might not be for the better. Well, did the General Assembly enact the measure behind transferring the state capital from Williamsburg to Richmond under Patrick Henry or Thomas Jefferson's governorship? The answer is um, the following. Uh, the capital got relocated under uh, Thomas Jefferson's governorship. So uh, basically, not long after Patrick Henry left office, Thomas Jefferson is now um, the next um, governor. Patrick Henry was Virginia's first non-royal governor. Thomas Jefferson is now the second. What I found interesting about Thomas Jefferson, uh, but, you know, when I think of Jefferson, and I think it's fair to say that when all of us think of Jefferson, we think of him as a writer. Well, largely in part because, you know, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Yes, he had assistance. Yes, we know that he had to uh, make multiple revisions, 86 of them. But he is an excellent writer in general. As a matter of fact, writing for him is probably more therapeutic versus being a lawyer. Jefferson only spent about three years practicing law and got tired of the profession because he felt that... Um, that lawyers were only looking after them for themselves. <laughs> Some people probably still feel the same way today. But what I didn't realize about Jefferson, and I was reminded of this when I read um, Judy Bander's book, was that Jefferson, at the beginning of the onset of the Revolutionary War, uh, Thomas Jefferson became a colonel, along with being named commander of the Albemarle County Militia, on September 26th of 1775. Now, you know, prior to obviously becoming a um, colonel along with being named commander of Albemarle County's militia, Jefferson was in Philadelphia at the Second Continental Congress. But obviously, um, he will be going back to Philadelphia. However, after July 4th, 1776, being the day that... Um, that all 56 uh, delegates at, at um, what we now know as um, well, the State Assembly House in Philadelphia all um, agreed upon um, declaring their uh, official separation from England. Uh, the motion had been um, voted upon uh, two days earlier on the 2nd, but they voted um, unanimously to declare July 4th as the day of official separation from England. So what we have to realize is that uh, at some point after July 4th of 1776, Thomas Jefferson does return back to Virginia. And it's during uh, a three-year span between 1776 and 1778 that Jefferson, he's doing a lot of good things. He's doing a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes work. He's a legislator uh, serving in uh, Virginia's House of Delegates. Of course, it used to be the House of Burgesses, but now, um, since uh, the time that uh, Lord Dunmore was ousted from power, you know, Virginia's government is undergoing radical change. How so? Well, Thomas Jefferson, uh, even as a delegate, 
even as a member to the House of Delegates, was involved in um, helping contribute to the creation of Virginia's um, Constitution. So basically, Jefferson would have had a part in um, seeing to it that the governor would have been um, allowed a maximum of three consecutive one-year terms. It would have been crazy for anyone to think that uh, someone should have uh, a four-year term because, you know, if someone's going to be in power for four years, even in, in 1776, that's going to be something on the um, grounds of... Um, might sound crazy, but this is the way people would have thought in 1776. If we're electing people to four- and eight-year terms, that to us seems like uh, tyranny. In other words, who's to say that we're going to like the, the ruler uh, who's going to be ruling over us for four and eight years? We can handle one year because if we don't like what the ruler is doing um, after a one-year uh, term, then, then uh, there is uh, the power from within... Uh, the Council of State, which would have been the uh, governor's advisory council, whom could basically state, hey, we have no confidence, um, we have a state of no confidence, and therefore we can ask that the governor uh, resign or be um, impeached. But luckily that didn't happen. However, for Thomas Jefferson, uh, he did introduce two bills, two that I think are, are very, very powerful, and we need to be reminded of this because we have these freedoms today, but he was laying the groundwork. He proposed a bill which sought to prohibit state support of religious institutions. Did you hear that, folks? He sought to prohibit, he introduced a bill that sought to prohibit state support of religious institutions along with um, enforcement of religious doctrine, as well as another bill introducing legislation aimed at abolishing the Anglican Church, the Church of England. Remember, folks, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, that is the official church in Virginia. And even if you don't attend the Church of England and say you're a Baptist or Methodist, guess where your taxes go? To the Church of England. And just because you're a Baptist, it doesn't mean that you're allowed to worship freely. Baptists in Virginia, folks, are, are frowned upon. Baptists are the largest dissenting group in Virginia, and Baptists are often jailed, whipped, uh, and worst-case scenarios, persecuted, all because they are practicing different faith, all in the name because they are uh, basically challenging the status quo that has pretty much been in existence for um, almost 170 years. Think about it, folks. When the English came to Jamestown in 1607, where are their allegiances to? The Church of England, because the men whom came over, that first group of men that came over in 1607, their mission was to um, their mission was to uh, keep the status quo as it was with the Anglican Church, but they came over seeking um, economic uh, riches. So, yes, for Thomas Jefferson, he, um, he is laying the groundwork for what we know as separation of church and state. Jefferson does not believe that the church should be telling the government how to govern. He also doesn't believe that the church should be telling the government what they can and cannot introduce legislation-wise. He believes that the government should not be telling the church how to um, 
conduct its uh, sermons to the uh, members of the, uh, of the congregate. Or he basically he believes that the government should not be telling uh, ministers how to uh, preach their sermons to their congregations. He's basically telling the uh, government not to tell the church how to. Um, basically, he's telling the government not to um, interfere with what kind of Bibles the church uses in, um, in uh, conducting religious hymns, or we call hymns that people sing in uh, church service, and um, basically um, biblical scripture. So basically, church and state need to be independent from one another. However, um, as um, admirable as it was that Jefferson introduced both of these bills, they did not get passed. It would take another fellow Virginian, a dear friend of Mr. Jefferson's and uh, Mr. James Madison, whom would reintroduce these measures uh, come post-Revolutionary War era time. As a matter of fact, those bills would be introduced when Thomas Jefferson is overseas in France as ambassador. Now, by September of 1780, what had Virginia and other states been grappling with war-wise? Do you think it had anything to do with um, maintaining a uh, surplus where money would go towards uh, funding the war? Or do you think it had to do with um, maintaining... Um, do you think it had to do with um, with uh, inconsistencies behind uh, recruiting men to enlist and serve in their state militias or regimental units? The answer is choice B. Virginia, along with along with the majority of other states, were dealing with constant inconsistencies behind recruiting men to enlist and serve in their state militias. Well. I do know that, um, based upon what I've read and learned in documentaries, that um, during the Revolutionary War's early years, between 1775 and 1776, for many men, um, enlistment periods ranged from six months to a year. Under Thomas Jefferson's governorship, volunteers whom signed up to serve until conflicts end, that is, until the war ended, were promised a sum, listen to this, folks, they were promised a sum of $12,000. That's a lot of money, folks, back then. So think about it. If you have 100 men whom are willing to volunteer and serve until war's end, that means you've got to pay each, of, each man individually $12,000. And I was thinking to myself, where would you get that kind of money? Okay, you're being promised a sum of $12,000, but better yet, you're going to get a better bonus. And I'm not talking a bonus in terms of money, but, you're, but the better incentive will be that you're going to get 300 acres of land in the western part of uh, Virginia. Well, when I say Western Virginia, I'm not talking necessarily West Virginia. But when I refer to Western Virginia, how about the geographic region consisting of the Shenandoah Valley and Southwest Virginia? So when you think of the Shenandoah Valley, uh, think of uh, what we now know as like Winchester, Strasburg. Winchester and Strasburg are not far apart from each other in the northern end of the valley. 
And as you go into uh, the central part of the valley, uh, think of uh, Harrisonburg, where James Madison University is. And if you go into the southern end of the valley, you've got Lexington, uh, where Washington and Lee University is, uh, Natural Bridge right on the outskirts, and then uh, Roanoke, uh, which is referred to as the Star City of uh, the South. So the Shenandoah Valley covers uh, a huge swath uh, from Winchester all the way down south uh, into uh, Roanoke. And then southwest Virginia is pretty much anywhere um, west of Roanoke, uh, most notably Salem, Blacksburg, Withville, uh, Pulaski, uh, Radford. Uh, pretty much uh, southwest Virginia going as far southwest as Bristol into what we now know as present-day uh, Tennessee and Kentucky. So this looks good for anybody who wants to, who's going to volunteer and serve in the uh, Virginia militia or uh, regimental units of Virginia until war's end. The bigger question is, is this a true, um, is this a true pact? Is this a true um, deal? I'd like to think it is, but is it also a means of, um, of reducing the, um, what do you call it? You know, people say, oh, I've served six months to a year. I've done my time. That's it. No more for me. They're trying to uh, reduce uh, what would be desertions. They're trying to reduce, um, what do you call it? They're trying to cut down on um, on people um, refusing to um, be committed to something that's greater. So in other words, this is a, a an incentive to keep people um, believing that we have a chance to still beat the the mother country that we that our independence and that what our um and what the men in Philadelphia um did for us on July 4th of 1776 is still a real thing. You know, it's one thing to uh declare your independence or separation from England, but when you win battles, that document does have relevance. Well, um before Virginia really becomes um a hotbed of uh, further um, conflict in terms of uh, war, uh, what do you call it, uh, war um, fighting, or just uh, what do you call it, a greater prevalence of fighting. Where had the um, greatest level of fighting in America's southern colonies taken place come the start and end of May 1780? So basically, we're talking um, just around the time 1780 begins, but most notably into the into uh, the end of May of that year. Of course, when I think of southern colonies, there's the Upper South and the Lower South. The Upper South being Virginia and North Carolina. The Lower South being South Carolina and Georgia. So where do you all think would have been the greatest fighting in America's southern colonies that would have uh, been that would have been occurring come the start and end of May 1780? That answer is South Carolina. I tell you, um, the South Carolinians. One time when I was in Colonial Williamsburg, um, George Washington was up on the Charlton stage, and so was Patrick Henry. I remember um, after the. Um, discussion ended, uh, this was well before the pandemic, uh, about at least three or four years, I remember I had the chance to talk to Mr. Henry in private. I asked him, I said to him, you know, 
how do the Car- how are the Carolinas responding to all that's going on, especially with the non-importation agreements that were agreed upon from the First Continental Congress? And he said to me, he said, well, you know, the South Carolinians are willing to go along with the non-importation agreement, which makes me happy, largely because I never knew, we ne- most of us didn't know what to expect. We didn't know what to expect from them one day after the other. It had nothing to do with being hostile towards the South Carolinians. It was just that Mr. Henry knew that uh, the South Carolinians were were heavily dependent upon um, Britain for uh, trading. But then again, who wasn't in colonial America? But he knew that the South Carolinians did agree to that non-importation agreement, meaning that they would not allow any British goods um, to be allowed in onto American soil for a year until they decided to um, lift all of the um, restrictions from the uh, intolerable, a.k.a. coercive acts. Well, March 29th to May 12th of 1780, a 45-day siege of Charleston, South Carolina took place. 45 days, folks. That's six weeks and three days. 45-day siege. This must be very intense fighting. It was intense fighting. It did result in a British victory, which is not a good thing, especially if you're on the Patriot side. But most importantly, to British forces, Charleston, South Carolina, was entirely in their hands. Well, what makes Charleston, South Carolina so unique? Well, Charleston is pretty much the jewel of uh, southern cities at this time. Charleston is a vital port. As a matter of fact, Charleston might as well be the equivalent of a port that we know of in, say, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, the port of Philadelphia, the port of New York. So Charleston is pretty much in the top four in terms of um, commercial um, trading hubs in colonial America. And now that the British have Charleston, South Carolina, it is a huge blow for the um, Southern Continental Army. And I will tell you all more of that here in just a moment. But um, from the start of when the uh, siege first began, American forces had been heavily outnumbered. The Southern Continental Army forces stood at around 6,577. That seems like a good number when you consider that that number comprises of regulars, meaning uh, actual regulars in the continent, Southern Continental Army, militiamen and sailors being a part of the Navy under General Benjamin Lincoln's command. The problem is that he's going up against 12,847 regulars and militia, including 4,500 sailors on the British side. You know, most people would probably tell you right away, look, maybe you shouldn't consider uh, fighting the enemy. Maybe it might be best to uh, consider a, um, a truce agreement so that nobody on your side, being that of the Patriots, would get taken as prisoner, or prisoners of war, I should say. Well, General Benjamin Lincoln, um, he is actually from... Um, from uh, Hingham, Massachusetts, which is outside of Boston. So General uh, Benjamin Lincoln, he's a very well-respected man, but he's in a dilemma. 
his dilemma is an internal one. He's got two choices. The first is that he can uh, take a stand. He could basically take a stand and say, hey, look, I'm willing to defend Charleston with the men I have. And by willing to defend Charleston, nobody could ever come back and say that I didn't make a valiant effort. Okay. Here's the other problem. If Benjamin Lincoln doesn't do anything about it, in his eyes, there are people who could come back and call him all sorts of names, most notably a coward. For General Benjamin Lincoln, he is worried that he would be considered a coward because he did not try to take a stand. Well, despite his best efforts, I mean, he does take on uh, the British forces. Despite his best efforts in defending Charleston during this 45-day siege, General Lincoln, in the end, is forced to surrender his entire army of over 5,400 men. Sadly, this was the largest surrender of Continental Army forces throughout the Revolutionary War. And prior to the surrender, on April 13th, if we thought the surrender alone was bad enough, on April 13th, South Carolina's governor, John Rutledge, was forced to flee for his life. Because if he hadn't fleed when he had, or if he hadn't left when he had, probably that sounds better, Rutledge would have been taken prisoner by British forces. For all we know, maybe the British would have sent Rutledge to England to be tried for treason and executed. John Rutledge went as far north into North Carolina just for just to be assured that he would be safe from not falling into enemies into the enemy hands. He probably was somewhere along the North and South Carolina border. But if that was bad enough, um, those whom um, did not escape, we know that about 2,571 American troops would be imprisoned on British warships. Can you imagine being imprisoned on a British warship, folks? Now, I've, seen, I've watched documentaries on television, and the most notorious of British warships were up in New York. And historians know that about 12,000 men died as prisoners of war throughout the American Revolutionary War itself. That pales in comparison to the 6 million Jews who lost their lives during the Holocaust. But after watching the documentaries that I saw, and seeing firsthand the horrors of the prisoners whom were um, placed below the surface of these warships, the conditions were beyond atrocious. They were eating molded bread. They were eating spoiled, rotten meat. They were surrounded by rats. They had no proper ventilation. Basically, they were dying a slow death, but they were inhumanely treated. So to me, this was a mini-holocaust. I can't compare the lives of 12,000 men lost to 6 million, but if you saw this documentary, you would know that it was a smaller version of a holocaust. So yes, about 2,571 American troops would be imprisoned on British warships, whereas militia and civilians 
were granted parole. Of course, when I think of parole, that means, you know, someone's being released from prison. But in this case, it was on the condition that they did not take up arms against the crown. General Benjamin Lincoln's surrender left no other significant Continental Army stronghold in the South. And I'm sure many of you all are thinking, what in the world would Virginia have to do with this if the fighting is going on in South Carolina? Well, uh, hold on to your seatbelts here for just a moment, because that answer is going to be coming up here shortly. But another battle that occurred uh, after the siege of Charleston, which was, in my opinion, it wasn't the ultimate nail in the coffin, but it was pretty much close to it. May 29th of 1780, the Battle of Waxhaws near Lancaster, South Carolina, occurred not too far from the North and South Carolina line. This battle takes place and it involves a Continental Army officer from Virginia named uh, Abraham Buford. He goes up against a British officer whose name will be discussed in other uh, future podcast segments down the road, but we're going to uh, learn about him here briefly. His name is Colonel Banastray Tarleton, a.k.a. Bloody Ban. And uh, the term Bloody Ban will, um, or the phrase Bloody Ban will be mentioned in a later podcast. These two um, go face to face with each other, not like, not like medieval, uh, what do you call it, jousting, but their forces go up against each other. They are the lead commanders on the op- on on each side. There was confusion on this uh, day, on May 29th, on the battlefield. As the British forces were getting closer to launching their assault on Abraham Buford and his men, and they were about 10 to 20 yards away from uh, the Continental forces, General Buford engages or attempts to engage in a truce. The cavalry that Banastray Tarleton, his dragoon forces, are coming. They are coming very quick, and Buford's men know that they're in trouble. They've underestimated the power of Tarleton's forces. So both sides, however, fire upon each other in the midst of this chaos within 10 to 20 yards of each other. Banastray Tarleton is shot. Basically, he is shot and he falls below his horse. He falls off his horse, rather. The British are enraged by this. Here, um, Buford's men are trying to uh, plead their case for surrender under a flag of truce, but it is denied. The British see the actions that the um, Americans have engaged in by shooting Tarleton as as the ultimate crime. The men have dropped down their arms. They've dropped, yeah, dropped down their arms, meaning their rifles or muskets, and they've got their hands waved in the air, saying, "Hey, look, we are asking for a formal surrender without any blood being shed." Well, it turns out that the opposite happens. An onslaught, aka massacre, takes place. This is nothing like what happened back in 17, on the night of March 5th, 1770, with the Boston Massacre. Virginians, folks, were among the many whom surrendered not only at Charleston, as well as being slaughtered to death at Waxhaw. Okay, so Virginia is involved. Virginia has sent troops. Governor Jefferson has sent troops 
down to South Carolina, whom have participated in the siege at Charleston, whom have probably now been been sent aboard the prison ships. And if any of them have been lucky enough to have been given parole, that's a miracle unto itself. But it's probably fair to say that the majority of the Virginians are uh, are prisoners of war on those British warships. And many of them, sadly, were slaughtered to death at Waxhaw. They know, historians know at Waxhaw, about 113 men were slaughtered to death. The British took their um, rifles and... Uh, put their bayonets in place. Their bayonets were already in place, and they basically massacred these men whom were pleading for mercy only to be slaughtered to death, all because of the, um, what do you call it? Um, all because of, um, what do you call it? Um, a rush to judgment with miscommunication. But Tarleton was on a mission himself. He had no regards or respect for Americans. So, sadly, in the aftermath of the Waxhaw onslaught, the rally cry going forward became the following. Remember the Waxhaws. For, going forward, the Patriots would have this uh, slogan that future fighting in South Carolina, they would be remembered of what happened at the Waxhaws. Those who survived would live to say, remember the Waxhaws. The British victory in Waxhaw, Waxhaw, along with Gaines and Camden, and at 96, gave British supreme reign in the South prior to 1780 coming to an end. And I'm sure some of you all are wondering, why is there a place in South Carolina called 96? Well, the reason why it's called 96 is because it was an old Indian trading post. In British, uh, what do you call it, uh, colonial Indian traders in South Carolina would uh, go to towns in and around 96, but they basically determined that the mileage from, from places north to south was within close to 100 miles, but they, uh, it's fair to say that they probably um, set it around 96. So basically it was a, um, a, play, a trading post based upon uh, mileage of towns from a north to south radius. And the Indians, that, um, Indian tribes around northwest South Carolina that were of um, significant uh, status were the Cherokees and the Catawbas. Um, I learned that the uh, Cherokees were on the side of the British during the war and the Catawbas were on the side of the Patriots. Well, do you think there's any light for, uh, for the cause in, uh, in the South, that is for the Southern Continental Army? Uh, believe it or not, there is. And it's one that's going to backfire on the British. The British commander, uh, prior to 1780's end, being uh, Sir Henry Clinton, made a fateful decision. He decided before going back up north to New York that he was going to revoke all South Carolinian militiamen and civilians' parole without their direct consent. Isn't that a unique theme throughout this um, American Revolution? You know, it's one thing to impose, one thing to want to uh, enact legislation, but if you don't re request um, getting consent from those whom are governed below, then how can the legislation itself be of relevance? Even John Adams himself said it's one thing to want to um, tax an Englishman, but you must get his consent 
Otherwise, if you're going to pass uh, taxes upon um, a governing body and do it without their consent, then how can there be any kind of uh, mutual agreement that would last between both parties short and long term? I find what uh, Sir Henry Clinton did as a terrible um, grievance because it wasn't so much that he uh, revoked their parole without their direct consent, being that of the South Carolinian militiamen and civilians. These actions on Clinton's part backfired to where he had underestimated the greater people of South Carolina, most notably in the state's backcountry. And when I refer to backcountry, folks, I'm talking about um, towns and uh, villages 40 miles west of um, the low country. And of course, when I think of low country, I think of Charleston, Georgetown, uh, Port Royal, Beaufort. So when we're talking 40 miles west of those areas, how about places like Walterboro, uh, Orangeburg, and then um, other places that uh, further west like Columbia, which is now the capital of South Carolina. So basically the further west you go um, past the further west you go of the low country, that's what you where you're getting into the true heart of South Carolina's backcountry, where a majority of the uh, conflicts would happen, and war itself would be ultimately redefined, not just in South Carolina, but to the north in North Carolina. And how what I mean by war being redefined, how about um, irregular style war, guerrilla warfare, non-traditional European style of fighting? Well, what happened in Virginia? Okay, here we go, folks. Now we're going to get into uh, Virginia. I mean, not that we haven't been talking about Virginia, but now we're talking about right in the actual state of Virginia. What happened in Virginia on January 1st of 1781? Was it of good news or bad news? Well, the answer is bad news. Ex-Continental Army officer now turned British... Brigadier General Benedict Arnold, ah, the infamous traitor, Benedict Arnold, boy, he sold his country out, all right. British General Benedict Arnold, with a force of between 1,600 and 1,800 redcoats, made their way into Richmond, Virginia's, into Richmond, Virginia, being the state's capital. For Governor Thomas Jefferson, uh, Richmond was seen as a better central location versus Williamsburg. Well, he's got a point there. I can understand why the capital was relocated. Of course, many in Williamsburg bitterly opposed it, because Williamsburg was never the same after uh, the capital was relocated. But just because you're in a central location, it doesn't always mean that you're going to be 100% safe uh, from, an, from an enemy attack like that of the British. So prior to the start of 1781, Governor Jefferson moved the Richmond's military supplies five miles outside the capital, a move that would eventually hurt the capital's uh, internal defense uh, systems. So let's get a, um, what do you call it, a, a chronology of events starting on January 1st to understand just how deeply impacted Richmond was. From January 1st to January 3rd, 1781, Benedict Arnold's forces sailed up the James River, destroying plantations and settlements. Wow. 
you know, think about it. In that day and time, there's no such thing as homeowner's insurance. So if your home gets destroyed by the enemy, you've pretty much lost everything. And you better hope that whatever you have as a means of survival is on you. What I mean by that is like having a musket, rifle. After all, you're going to need to hunt uh, wild game. You're going to need to have provisions that are going to last you maybe three days at best for survival until you can find um, adequate shelter. But on January 4th, British forces converge on Westover Plantation, which was home to the uh, Bird family, being that of William, William Bird II, whom was uh, one of um, the founders of uh, Richmond. And Westover Plantation is not far from... Um, well-known plantations like Shirley and Berkeley Plantation in uh, Charles City County on Virginia's uh, historic State Route 5, which you can take to uh, Colonial Williamsburg. So um, it was at Westover Plantation where the march to Richmond began, and on January 5th, Benedict Arnold's forces arrived into Richmond, which was defended by 200 militiamen. Okay, you would think 200 militiamen can defend the city well. No, numbers alone don't um, don't add up, or they don't um, mean that the answers are going to be to our liking. But their presence alone wasn't enough to defend the capital, given many of them had already fulfilled their ex existing enlistment duties. They're pretty much at the end of the road. Oh my gosh! Um, now I'm being asked to defend the capital. Hello. If no one else is helping you, yes, you might be up a creek, but you've got to do whatever it takes to um, to hold the ground. But I do feel for these uh, militiamen here because they are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Well, January 5th, in the aftermath of militia dispersing, and they did disperse. I mean, they got off a shot or two, but that was it. They were um, They were scared. I mean, can you blame them? No. Governor Jefferson orders a mass evacuation of the capital's military supplies, and Jefferson and his family, along with government officials, also leave. Well, this doesn't look good, and as a matter of fact, Benedict Arnold goes as far as writing a letter to Governor Jefferson. He basically says in the letter this, that I will read... I will personally oversee to it that the capital's tobacco and military provisions be um, placed on my ships. If all of this is done, I promise you that I will leave Richmond unharmed. In other words, the buildings, people's homes, all of this will stay intact. Well, a day later, January 6th, Thomas Jefferson writes back to Benedict Arnold, and basically, Jefferson is not going to give in to his uh, demands. I actually applaud Jefferson for doing this, because if Jefferson did give in to Arnold's demands, and, and everyone else in the government knew, and as well as within the greater city, they would pretty much call Jefferson out as a traitor and demand that he be hung for treason. So Benedict Arnold is very, very upset that he didn't that Jefferson did not give in to uh the demands that were requested. So Benedict Arnold takes things up another level. He authorizes his troops to torch all of Richmond, which they did, ranging from destroying um, 
homes to plundering cities' essential valuables like gunpowder to foundries where vast armaments were stored. Wow. You know, you, I mean, on one hand, I understand why Jefferson um, did not give in to Arnold's demands, but sadly, there wasn't a whole lot that was able to be done on our end to uh, stop the, the burning and the plundering. Did Governor Jefferson order a counterattack in the aftermath of Arnold's destruction upon Richmond? Believe it or not, folks, he did. Okay, so it looks like we might be moving up in the right direction. Thomas Jefferson turned to a close friend in Sampson Matthews, who was the colonel of, of the Virginia militia, and he was no and um, Sa Colonel Sampson Matthews was no stranger to public service, given that he had uh, a strong background in uh, serving on the governor's state of council to being involved in militaristic affairs uh, that went as far back as prior to um, the shots first heard around the world at Lexington and Concord. As a matter of fact, uh, Sampson Matthews uh, was a part of um, Lord Dunmore's last war involving Virginia in uh, reclaiming and claiming territory um, in what we now know as uh, West Virginia along the West Virginia-Ohio line in what's uh, known as uh, Point Pleasant. So, Colonel Matthews, in early January 1781, was stationed in Stanton. Uh, but after Richmond burned, his presence became more relevant to where he mustered around 200 militiamen whom were successful in taking Benedict Arnold's forces by surprise where irregular, a.k.a. guerrilla-style fighting tactics, were instituted. And for those of you who don't know what irregular-style fighting is, I'll give you a brief example. All right, let's say uh, Benedict Arnold's forces are in the woods. We've got, and then our militia is scattered out. We've got militia on different sides. But we see Arnold's forces marching nearby to where our troops, regardless of what side we're on, can fire from a distance. And once we start firing on them, uh, they don't know what's hit them. But even after we've fired upon them, we can fall back. So for those who have not been hit on Arnold's side, they can go in different directions and try to chase us down. But once we are in a position to, again to fire, we will inflict... Um, we will inflict um, casualties. We will um, inflict um, pain on them. So in other words, they won't know what's hit them, but for every um, number of uh, soldiers that are wounded or killed, that means that Benedict Arnold is going to have to go out into the countryside. He's going to have to go into um, another city to, find, to recruit those who will be loyal to the king and uh, fill in... Um, the missing voids of what's left of his existing army. So basically, irregular style fighting is where you are fighting a non-conventional war. You might not be inflicting mass casualties on the enemy, but if you eliminate five or ten men of a greater force, over time you are wearing out the enemy. That's what was taking place um, in South Carolina after, more so after the debacles at uh, Camden and at uh, Charleston, at, including Waxhaw. So, yes, Colonel Ma Sampson Matthews 
does a great job here, folks. There were many casualties within the British Army, that is, of Benedict Arnold's army. The skirmishes did last more than one day, and because the fighting was so intense, Benedict Arnold ordered a retreat eastward to Portsmouth, where his remaining forces could go about setting up defense posts along with waiting on reinforcement arrivals. Okay, well, we have really struck a blow now to Benedict Arnold, but I think the problem, though, is that just because we've struck a blow, it doesn't mean that Benedict Arnold is giving up. It may not mean, too, that, um, that the greater British presence is giving up either, too. What Governor Jefferson doesn't realize, and maybe Colonel Sampson Matthews doesn't realize, too, along with other um, officers in Virginia, is that we're now in the beginnings of a long-term uh, crisis. Although British General Benedict Arnold and his invasion of Virginia in 1781 marked the start of something different, considering that past British raids were short-lived, in Virginia that is, going forward though, in, in January of 1781 has uh, shown this, the British presence in Virginia was now meant to become a permanent fixture until they officially won the war, that is, the greater war itself over her subjects, a.k.a. the 13 colonies. So for Britain, if they can get Virginia, all of Virginia, that means that Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia, being the South, will succumb into British hands, and America may not be completely unified, I mean, we have 13 unified colonies, but if we have four colonies back into um, the mother country's hands, then America's independence may not be as relevant as it was uh, around the time of uh, July 4th of 1776 when 56 delegates came together and approved uh, the day of July 4th as the official day of separating from England. Well, thank you for your time, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be looking forward to um, discussing more relevant stuff. And at some point, yes, Jack Jewett's name will be mentioned again, but we have to remember that this ride to save Virginia and the American Revolution being uh, Jack Jewett's ride is more than just Mr. Jewett himself. It is also about what led up, what will be leading up to his ride. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon with you all. Uh, take care for now, and wherever you all may live in the world, uh, continue to stay safe. Later.